Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Will Hamilton and the province ever get along? You can now get the COVID pill at your local drugstore. Find out why some physicians are adopting a daycare. A way to combat the flu or a cold is to eat right. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, is he getting ready to pull the rug out from underneath the PM? And working one day a week at the office will make you happier and more productive. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. This isn't a courtroom. Government officials don't appear before municipal councillors to, I think the wording in the motion was even stronger, something like account for our actions. And as the voice of Flamborough, Glanbrook Conservative MPP Donna Skelly, a guest on the Scott Radley Show, weeknight 6 to 8 here on 900 CHML. She wasn't too impressed with Hamilton City Council's recent motion that asked the Ontario government to repeal parts of Bill 23, which is the new provincial housing legislation. Part of that bill is to build one and a half million homes over the next 10 years. John Paul Denko is a councillor of Ward 8 with the City of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. JP, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, City of Hamilton versus the Ford government. How would you describe the relationship on the housing front? This is not the city of Hamilton versus the Ford government. This is every municipality in Ontario, every taxpayer in Ontario versus the Ford government. The uh, the Bill 23, More Homes Built Faster Act, is really the Less Homes, Higher Taxes Act for uh, taxpayers. That's the reality. And we're not just talking about 23. We're also talking about the expansion of urban boundaries for sprawl development, paving over farmland, the dismantling of conservation authorities, and the broken promise to build houses on the green belt, which is uh, critically important farmland for uh, food production in Ontario. Some of the best farmland in all of Canada, Doug Ford is going to be building houses on. And, and that's, that's what's at stake here. That's why um, Hamilton City Council is so upset. And this is why municipalities and city councils across Ontario are also upset. And what I've seen, uh, that Hamilton is asking our local representatives to explain how they could possibly support such destructive legislation. We're seeing similar calls from other municipalities asking their local representatives to also come before their councils and explain themselves uh, similarly. I want to get to the Greenbelts issue in a second, but another big part of this is the deletion or waiving of development charges um, where Ms. Scali has said, listen, cities waive these charges all the time to incentivize developers to build condos, homes, whatever the project is. So what's the big deal? Well, I really wish that uh, provincial elected representatives would understand uh, municipal bylaws and how municipalities work. Because in Hamilton, anyway, we already waive development charges for affordable housing development. We already waive park, uh, parkland dedication fees for nonprofit affordable housing. So we're already incentivizing the building of new affordable housing. Right now, we're building 216 new uh, dedicated affordable housing units right here in Ward 8. We're building hundreds and hundreds of affordable housing units across Hamilton. So that's already happening. Municipalities are already doing that. What the development charge uh, waiving that the province is doing is going to devastate municipal finances because it drastically uh, expands the definition of what is affordable housing to pretty much every entry-level housing. 
You know, Marion Mead Ward, the mayor of Burlington, said that this will devastate municipal finances. It's really a subsidy for developers. The Association of Municipalities for Ontario has uh, calculated the cost to municipal taxpayers is about $5 billion over the next nine years. And to be clear, that's not downloading services to municipalities. That's not paying for services at all. That's your tax dollars as a municipal property taxpayer being used to subsidize developer profits. So, JP, can you confirm that developers who have built, I guess, non-affordable housing or projects have not seen their development charges waived or slightly reduced? Uh, that that's the intent of of Bill 23. So, for-profit developers uh, being able to uh, have a break on their development charges. But I, I think we also need to understand, and and again, I wish the provincial uh, officials would realize this is that development charges pay for things like roads and sidewalks and water and sewers and fire stations and police departments and arenas and recreation centers. And without those development charges, uh, when we expand, when we develop new areas that don't have those services, it's the existing taxpayers that have to pay for it. Uh, right now, development charges don't pay for 100% of development, so we are subsidizing those growth areas to a certain extent. But Bill 23 just makes it so much more, so much worse. You know, to the extent of five billion dollars of of uh, subsidy for developer profits over the next nine years, it's it's uh, it's devastating for municipal finances. We only got one more minute to talk about the Greenbelt lands. You have a seat at the council table. Literally, do you want the city to deny or even stall developments on Greenbelt lands? I think every municipality in, in Ontario is united on this. There is no purpose to build on the Greenbelt lands. You know, Ford had a secret meeting with developers years ago where he promised he was going to open up Greenbelt lands for development. And then he backtracked that and now is, you know, showing his true colors, I guess, in developing on Greenbelt lands. The city of Hamilton has over 30,000 units already approved more than enough supply for development over the next 10 years. There's absolutely no reason except for greed and profit to open up the green belt for development. Councillor Danko, appreciate your time today. Thank you. That is John Paul Danko, Councillor Ward 8, City of Hamilton. This debate, as you know, is going to continue to rage on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are quite optimistic that there will be many pharmacists that choose to do this because it is another pathway for them to assist their patients directly. That is Health Minister Sylvia Jones. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Starting today, Ontario pharmacists are allowed to prescribe the antiviral medication Paxlovid to people who present a positive COVID-19 test. What is the impact going to be? Dr. Isaac Bogosh is an infectious disease specialist and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Bogosh, good morning. How are you today? I'm okay. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm good. What do you think the impact is going to be on this, uh, I guess, new initiative from the provincial government? Uh, Small but positive. Very positive. It's a really smart thing to do. We know with this drug, time is ticking. You really got to start it as soon as possible and within a five-day window of a COVID-19 infection. And when we know how hard it is to go get medical care now. Many people don't have a family physician or the lines in emergency departments or urgent care centers are really long and they're not that all that accessible. I mean, this just lowers barriers to starting people on a medication that might help them and doing so in a timely manner. I think it's, it's a really, really good idea. 
at the end of the day, this is all about preventing hospitalizations. 100%. And, you know, like, we still have to communicate uncertainty here. It's not like we know that this drug is the be-all and end-all of medications. But based on the data we have to date, it appears that this drug is most useful for people at greatest risk of hospitalization and death. So people who are, you know, on the older end of the spectrum or who have underlying medical conditions that put them at, at risk for more severe infection, uh, this drug, you know, based on the data we have to date, appears that it will you know, lower that risk of hospitalization and severe outcomes. So if we can lower barriers to accessing this medication by any means possible, in this case by enabling pharmacists to prescribe it without the need of a, uh, of a physician, I think we're doing something right. What's your best guess on the uptake on this? I know it's not a needle, which I guess some people might be relieved to find out they can just pop the pill. I, I honestly don't know just yet, because I, I think as, as you, you played that clip earlier, we obviously need um, a few things to go right for this to work. You need pharmacists who will take this on, and, you know, it's not, it's not, I'm not going to say it's easy. You know, they're, everyone's busy, and, you know, tries adding more to everybody's workload. But I do think that some pharmacists will, will take this on. And, uh, you know, like that old line, perfection is the enemy. You just need some people to do this, some pharmacists and pharmacies to do this, word to get out. And, and it's not like COVID's going away anytime soon. I mean, this is just going to be a lingering issue that we have that waxes and wanes for the foreseeable future. So this is something that not just for, you know, this winter and, and whatnot. I mean, hopefully this is a program that can continue for years and years to come. And again, I, I obviously I think we need to do a little bit better to um, inform people that this is out there to perhaps encourage pharmacies and pharmacists to take this up. But uh, it's, it's a very smart program. So hopefully it does have an impact. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist. Let's move to uh, RSV and the flu. Where do we sit with those two? RSV, I mean, if we look at the indicators across Canada, most of them have leveled out or even started to, to come down. Thankfully, we knew how awful that was in the pediatric realm. Uh, but but flu is really taking off across the country. Uh, some places are already showing widespread flu transmission, and other parts of the country are well on their way to getting that to getting there. And you know, I mean, I'm sure people hear about this every time they turn on the radio or the TV. You know, the healthcare system is stretched, uh, and and we're having capacity issues. And you know, it's it's the flu. It's like obviously this year is way worse than past years, but it's not like we don't know what the flu is and how to prevent it. I mean. Flu shots are around. Yes, I get that sometimes it's a little challenging to get a, an appointment and not everywhere has a walk-in clinic. And it's, it can be a bit cumbersome to book an appointment. If, but on the other hand, like book an appointment, get your flu shot. It's, it's free. It's available for everyone six months of age and up. Um, and I mean, listen, we're, we're seeing a ton of flu in the hospitals, all, all, you know, the pediatric hospitals and the adult hospitals. It really is the youngest and the oldest that are most significantly impacted, but everybody should get a flu shot of any age, six months and older. McMaster Children's Hospital opening a new walk-in clinic today for kids who have the flu or a cold or COVID-19 to, you know, obviously ease congestion in the emergency department. Your thoughts on that and will other hospitals, or maybe they already are, following suit? I hope so. I mean, it's a wonderful idea and it really is smart to help alleviate some of the pressures on the healthcare system. Locally, I know many places are doing something similar across the country. Very, it, it's needed. It, it is sorely needed. But you know what else is sorely needed? Turning off the tap up, you know, and, and preventing this from happening as well. And I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So, 
you know, really investing in programs to get flu shots out to the people, just like we did with the COVID-19 vaccine in the first and second, for the first and second doses. Pop-up clinics everywhere, making this as easy as possible for families to get, uh, bringing the vaccine to the people rather than having to bring people to the vaccine. You'll get much better uptake, and this will also significantly contribute to alleviating pressures on the healthcare system. Dr. Bogosh, as always, thank you for your time today. Have a great day. That is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist that Matt Kids Walk-In Clinic runs Monday to Friday, 4.30 to 8.30 p.m. and weekends, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So it's a good way to get your flu vaccine. If you have COVID or signs of a cold and you're not quite sure what it is, could it be RSV, head over to the walk-in clinic as opposed to going to the ER, which is absolutely stuffed. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a lot of people getting sick this year, uh, perhaps because we all uh, were so diligent about being safe uh, over the past couple of years and wearing masks uh, that uh, we need to step up again and make sure that everyone's doing everything they can uh, to keep their families, uh, their loved ones and their communities safe. Well, he seems unwilling to give provinces more health care dollars, but Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is urging you to be safe. So I guess he's just saying good luck. Some medical professionals are helping administer flu shots in daycares to help ease the strain on pediatric hospitals. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is a family doctor, vaccine researcher, founder of Prime Health Research, and a medical columnist, and one of the driving forces behind Adopt a Daycare. And let's find more about this with Dr. Gorfinkel. Good morning. How are you? A warm good morning to you, Rex. Adoptadaycare.ca sees medical practitioners like yourself adopt a daycare. How does it work? Well, look at myself. I took the daycare that my own kids had gone to. I went down there this last Friday, vaccinated 60 people, 6-0. That's mostly kids, but some of their parents as well and their siblings. Consider this. Kids under five have the lowest vaccination rates in spite of having the highest hospitalization rates. And this at a time that elective surgeries are being canceled. And I'll share something else with you. Ontario is doing one of the worst of the provinces. If you take a look at BC, they've got one in five kids. That's not exactly something to brag about. Under five vaccinated to the flu. But how many is that in Ontario? Answer, one in 14. And that's only with one dose. You need two doses in really young kids, especially if they're getting the shot for the first time. And the saddest thing about it is that this year's flu shot is extremely well matched to the influenza A. That's the strain that's going around, which happens to be more dangerous and more likely to put people into hospitals. So there's a lot of good reasons. On a a typical year, that'll keep 75% of kids, three out of four kids, out of the hospital. And this year, it's likely going to be very, it's going to be better than that because it's so well matched. And, like, why aren't parents getting it? I'll share with you. It's because we are not taking the vaccines to them where they're needed. We have to be bringing it to the daycares. That's where the young kids are and vaccinating them. Because not to do that is to have more elective surgeries canceled for kids. It's to have longer waits in the emergency rooms and a harder time finding a bed when it's needed. Is one of the biggest underlying causes that we're just tired of getting needles in our arms over the last number of years? It's interesting. They did a recent survey on this. And the biggest reason by far is what I call the three eyes. 
there's indifference. People just, they're tired. They can't be thinking about the next shot and the next shot. There's inconvenience, the second eye. And then finally, there's the lack of information. And that together counts for about 60%. Six, three, out, three cases out of five. Why parents are not getting it. And then think about it. If you're a young parent, you've got a lot on the go. You've got your job to look after. You've got the shopping. This is what we did on Friday. We came between 3 and 6 o'clock. Why? Because that's when parents pick up their kids. And it was easy. They were sitting. The child is comfortable in the daycare. They're sitting in their parents' lap. And it was just a really quick and efficient process. The parents were so grateful. I have to tell you, it has to be unbelievably wonderful for, for us as, as healthcare workers to come in and see that sort of gratitude. True vaccine hesitancy accounts for less than 14%, one four. It's a small fraction of why parents are not vaccinating their children. We have to bring the vaccines to them, and that's very much the concept of adopt a daycare. We're trying to attach healthcare workers to daycares that have touched their lives. Any medical professional wanting to help out can go to adoptadaycare.ca. We're in discussion with Dr. Iris Gorfinkel here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned this is influenza A. When do we expect to see influenza B, and will that be worse? Well, if you take a look at the breakdown of this year's tight cases, it's 97% the H3N2. That's a form of influenza A, which is more deadly and more likely to put people into hospital. And why are young kids so much at risk? It's because their immune system is not yet mature. They haven't had the same exposures over a lifetime to build up their library of immune responses. So when they get exposed, especially to something as deadly as the H3N2, that's the form of influenza now, they risk hospitalization especially children with underlying diseases. You know, so when we took it to the daycare, it was, of course, up to parents to decide if they wanted to, but decide they did, and in droves. You know, it, it, it was interesting to see the reaction of parents, and most of the children were extremely happy to get it because, frankly, they were in a place of comfort to them. There was no, there was no cold metal table. There wasn't any, you know, surrounded by strangers. They were surrounded by their own friends. And it was a lot easier. That's what I found. And so I told parents, you're doing your child a tremendous favor. You're keeping them out of the hospital 75% of the time when you choose to vaccinate. And as I mentioned, if you take a look at other years, you know, that's what it's been. And this year, the flu vaccine is extremely well matched to what's circulating. So I, I ask you, why are we not taking this to kids? Why are we waiting for the kids to come to us? Pop-up clinics are great, but the fact of the matter is parents have to know, care, and then say to themselves, okay, I get it, but then have to get over that inconvenience factor. It's so a, this strips down those barriers. Absolutely. It's a unique and uh, in, intuitive and innovative program that Dr. Gorfinkel has spearheaded. Appreciate your time today. Best of luck going forward with this. 
Many thanks for having me, Rick. That is Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, the founder of Prime Health Research, a medical columnist as well, and uh, as I said, the driving force behind uh, AdoptAdayCare.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you've heard about the so-called triple-demic. It's underway. Flu, RSV, COVID-19. Uh, and children's fever-reducing medications are really hard to find these days. It, it has left many parents wondering what more can they do to keep their kids safe. Well, CHML's Dave Woodard spoke with holistic nutritionist Christina Guglielmi, who says what your children eat can make a big difference. Coming into cold and flu season, you know, we know that typically our kids are going to get, you know, at least four plus colds per year and having, you know, beneficial nutrition, proper nutrition, wholesome fruits and veggies and a solid diet can allow our bodies to sort of be proactive coming into getting these developing these viruses and, uh, you know, just give us the strength and the tools that we need to efficiently fight off colds and flus. Um, The more nutrient we have, uh, the better equipped we are to sort of work to fight off these viruses and have more energy throughout the day to be able to recover from them as well. So we're not talking about, you know, like replacing medication or replacing these things. We're just talking about, you know, like another, you know, tool in the toolbox, as it were. Absolutely. We're talking about uh, setting a foundation, essentially, for our body um, and just uh, strengthening ourselves as much as possible. There's never a replacement. It's just about how do we present in the best possible way and allow our bodies to be feeling good and strong coming into this season. You talk a little bit about stress and anxiety, and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the holidays. As much as it's fun, how are our immune systems kind of compromised by stress and anxiety? That's a great question because sometimes people don't necessarily put the two and two together. But when our systems are under stress, and that can be anything from, you know, daily stress for our children, it could just be getting up in the morning and going to school and being around other kids or homework or um, some of their extracurricular activities adding additional stress onto the body can increase certain stress hormones like cortisol, for example. When we have increased cortisol in our body, we can, uh, you know, tend to burn quite a bit of nutrients, uh, just trying to get our body back into balance, burning things like B vitamins and minerals like magnesium. And these are all things that we need to keep our body strong. And, you know, cortisol can also create cravings for things like sugar and processed foods because our body is just looking for quick burning energy to sort of survive and stay afloat with what's happening. And unfortunately, you know, some of those foods that we're looking to feed our bodies when we're under stress are actually things that are going to deplete our immune system even more. Also, stress can really add to inflammation in the body. And as inflammation in the body increases, that definitely will affect our immune response and our ability to efficiently fight off colds and flus. And Christina, you know as well as I do, it's hard to get uh, kids sometimes to eat something other than chicken nuggets. Um, you know, so how, how can we expect them to like drink a, a glass of green plus, you know what I mean? Like, how do we get them to, to, to take in some of these vitamins and, and some of the food that they need? Yeah, I I completely understand that because I have three children who all have very different likes and dislikes when it comes to food. Um, Some of the biggest things that I like to incorporate in my household is a daily smoothie. Generally speaking, I will incorporate it in the morning with their breakfast. So depending on what they have, they always have a smoothie there. This is like my savior. This is where I hide everything. Things like uh, frozen berries, which are going to be really high in vitamin C, 
uh, fresh green ve uh, vegetables like kale or spinach, which are going to have a ton of loaded nutrients. I add fiber like chia and hemp seeds, which are, you know, full of omegas um, and healthy fat and protein. And it's like the perfect place for me to hide things like fish oil, which, you know, some of my kids just refuse to eat fish and they never notice that it's in the smoothie. Um, so they're getting, you know, a healthy dose of omega and even vitamin D3 drops. So my smoothie is sort of my little vessel where I put everything in there in the morning. Um, and sometimes if it doesn't work in the morning, it's a wonderful after school snack or even something prior to dinner. That is definitely my go-to. But I also like to hide things in sauces as I cook. So whether it be a tomato sauce or, you know, any sort of sauce uh, over my cooking, I like to add additional veggies when I'm blending the sauce so that they're getting those nutrients packed into even something like a bowl of pasta, which is a quick sort of dinner on the go when you have a family and you're trying to make it to different appointments. Um, so it's all about hiding them in the foods that they least expect it to be in. Good information. Thank you, Christina and Dave. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a serious crisis and we need to see immediate action. The Prime Minister is not taking it seriously. As Prime Minister, that's what I would do. Immediately meet with the premiers and find solutions to this problem. That is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh calling out the Trudeau Liberals for not taking action on the country's health care crisis. Now, we know that improving health care... Pharmacare, dental care were all key pieces of the NDP liberal supply and confidence agreement, air quotes, a deal that would keep the federal liberals in power conceivably until 2025. While entering the final week of the fall sitting of the House of Commons before MPs break for the holidays, Global's Mercedes Stevenson spoke with Singh on the West Block. You can watch it on Global TV. You can listen to it here on 900 CHML Sundays at 6 p.m. And she spoke with Mr. Singh about the deal with the Liberals, the state of the country, and some other hot topics. Let's listen in to uh, their, the, the key component, which is the health care crisis in this country. It's cold and flu season. I know you now have a little one yourself, so I'm sure that um, the concerns about the state of children's hospitals uh, across this country strikes home for you, like so many Canadians, and for many adults' hospitals as well. It's, it's being described as a crisis. Part of the agreement that you laid out with the Liberals identified dental care, health care, and pharmacare. When I was reading through your health care section, it wasn't super specific. It didn't have sort of the numbers and the amounts that the other sections did that bound the government to that. Uh, would you consider trying to go back to the government and, and do you think you could even renegotiate that? How do you hold them accountable on health care when it's, it's supposed to be one of your priorities, but it seems like this is an ongoing disaster that's unfolding? Well, first of all, it is, it is a part of our priorities and we did lay it out in our agreement. You're absolutely right. And it is a disaster right now. Frankly, the, the Liberal government is failing to show leadership. The crisis we're seeing in our country, the Red Cross being called into children's hospitals in Ottawa, trailers being set up because of the overflow in children's hospitals in, in Alberta, uh, children dying because of the flu in, in BC. It is clear that this is a national crisis and it cannot be solved at the provincial level because one of the major concerns is human healthcare resource shortage, so worker shortage, uh, healthcare worker shortage. That can't be solved by provinces who are trying to recruit from one province, creating a shortage in the province they recruit from. So that's not a solution. The federal government has to step up, show leadership. We need to see more funding for frontline healthcare workers. We need to see more funding in general for a healthcare system. 
We need to see a, a strategy around how we can tackle the shortage of healthcare workers. Some of that's going to involve the immigration system. Some of that is going to involve taking the Canadian, uh, the new Canadians and Canadians that are here with international training and unlocking their ability to work in Canada. So there's a lot that needs to be done. We're not going to give up fighting. We have an agreement that gives us power. We're going to use that power to fight for Canadians. So I think that was a strong answer, right? He's, he's identifying everything that we know. It's a disaster right now. We need more federal funding. Where is the plan? So why then is the NDP not forcing the Liberals' hand? How far are you willing to go? Because this is a really critical issue. Pierre Polyev, Yves-Francois Blanchat, Elizabeth May, none of these party leaders have the ability to bring down the government. But you do. Are you willing to bring down the government over health care if they don't increase funding? Well, I would, I would flip the question and say we are willing to do whatever it takes to fight for people uh, to get the health care they need. And that means not giving up. A number of times uh, we were confronted with a no when we said people need help. And we didn't give up. We kept on fighting. I'm a fighter. That's what I do. I'm going to fight for people. And just because we're not getting the results now doesn't mean I'm going to give up. We've got an ability to force this government to act, and we're going to use our power to make that happen. But yes, there may come a time when it becomes clear to us that the Liberal government is just not willing to do what's needed to help people, and we reserve the right to withhold our support. We understand the ramifications of such a decision. But right now, our focus is on fighting and not giving up on people, but, not giving I mean, up on the fact that this government needs commitments. And here's the question. It, it becomes now... How much longer is the NDP willing to see this national health care crisis, this disaster, as Mr. Singh called it, continue? If, if part of your fight is, is that you, you actually do have that big stick that you can say, you know, we can pull the rug out from under you, we can go to an election and this is a crisis. What's your timeline on, on how long you're willing to give the government to respond in a way that you think is appropriate before you say enough is enough? Well, we're, we're nine months into to the agreement. Uh, we've used our power to get people help, and we know that there's a lot more that's needed. So we're going to keep on fighting. We're not going to give up. We're not going to give up simply because we're not getting the results right now. Canadians expect us to fight as hard as we can to get results for people, unlike the other parties who are just putting their hands up and haven't really done anything to influence decisions. We have. We've made the government. We forced the government to deliver things like dental care to deliver on things like the GST rebate, uh, rental supports as well, giving people more money in their pockets. And we know that healthcare is a priority. So we're going to use our power and we're going to keep on fighting. We're not going to give up. The Liberal government made commitments to Canadians. We're going to hold them to account. We're not going to let them off the hook. Thanks again to the West Block for the audio. The West Block on Global TV. You can watch it on Global's YouTube channel and listen to it on 900 CHML every Sunday at 6 p.m. But it, it boggles the mind that this federal government uh, knowing what we know about pediatric hospitals, about healthcare in general in this country, has not come out and said, listen, we need some kind of national summit. Let's all come to the table. Let's hash it out. Let's figure out what needs to be done and then go from there. Apart from saying, uh, okay, provinces, yeah, we'll give you some money, but you have to show us what you're going to spend that money on. Well, duh, it's healthcare. Like this is, <laughs> let the provinces do what they need do, and let's increase these healthcare transfer payments. It's a pretty simple scenario. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Remote work, hybrid work. How many days of the week are you at the office? Well, I mean, if you're retired, it doesn't apply, right? But if you are going to work in the physical workspace, is it Five days a week? Is it four? Do you do three? Maybe even two? Well, how about one? Well, how about none? 
you might be in that category as well. Well, there's a new survey from the Toronto Metropolitan University that suggests working one day a week in person, just one day at the office, might create happier and, most importantly, more productive employees. And I shouldn't discredit being happy because a happy worker is a more productive worker. Sam Andre is the Director of Policy and Research in the Leadership Lab at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Sam, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good. How are you? I'm, I'm good. Before we dive into the figures here, I wanted to get your mind space in terms of, you know, when you're doing these sort of surveys, you have some kind of preordained thought or a thesis going into it. What, what did you think your data was going to show? It's a good question. So we've been sort of grappling with how to best support remote workers. This feels like a paradigm shift, you know, around the world. More people are going to be working in this hybrid uh, some days in person, some days uh, um, online. And so how to best support them, how to not, you know, over surveil them um, is, was basically the question we were hoping to get at. And we think we found some interesting things. What you found was that, to no one's surprise, remote workers like working remotely? What are the factors that they enjoy? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, their job satisfaction is higher working remotely. 78% say they like their job when they work remotely, and that falls to 41% when they're working in person. So a big difference. They say their work-life balance has improved as a result of remote work. 60% of Canadians say that. Um, And they say they're getting more done. So 54% say they are getting more done as a result of working from home. And we asked uh, their supervisors as well, uh, and they're aligned, basically. 52% of the supervisors agree that their uh, remote workers are getting more done, and only 15, 1.5%, think they're getting less done. So, you know, uh, that that's a lot of good. On the flip side, people say their connections with their colleagues have worsened. Uh, you know, uh, majority think uh, that they are less connected with their colleagues. So that's problematic. In the more done category, I, I would I would say that's exactly right because, you know, for, for many people in this community, commuting to places like the GTA, which thousands of people do and, and thousands still do at this point, maybe not to the same degree, you know, taking those four hours off the road and putting that into work, of course, you're going to get more done. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so it's about, you know, this balance of we've figured out how to, you know, connect the employees to the uh, to the work, you know, through technology and, and other platforms. Um, and so, you know, they're able to be as productive as they used to be. And so the question now is, okay, so we can harness that, though, is it important that they also feel, you know, connected to their colleagues? And is there a balance between that connection and the productivity? That's an important part because, you know, yeah, you can be connected through a screen uh, like Zoom or Teams or whatever the application is, but having that physical kind of interaction, that that's a, that's a massive difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so we sort of probed at that exact question, which is, is there a, a sweet spot between that productivity at home uh, and, and satisfaction at home and still building, you know, connections with your colleagues? And we found at one day a week in person, um, your job satisfaction, your trust in your employer, the amount you're getting done isn't declining significantly from from fully remote zero days a week. Um, but once you get to two and three days, people's satisfaction and and uh, um, what they and how happy they are and how much they trust their employer starts to fall off. Um, uh, they feel like they're being too controlled, and so. 
um, you know, we suggest that if employers are worried about that connection with their employee between their employees, which is a you know important factor for sure, um, you know, maybe start with one day a week requiring them to come together in person, build that connection, um, maybe a way to start. Talking about hybrid work on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML with our guest Sam Andre from Toronto Metropolitan University. They've uh, put out a new survey that suggests working one day a week in person might create happier and more productive employees. You can check it out on the website, theconversation.com. You also have a section uh, where it says expectations versus reality. Tell us a little bit about what you found there. Sure, yeah. So one of the questions we were asking was, how much does your employer expect you to go into the office? You know, no, no fixed expectations, uh, one day, two days, three days. And, you know, interestingly, about half of people who are working remotely, so this isn't people who, who work in person regularly, but people who are working remotely regularly, about half have no fixed expectations. So they, it's up to them when to go in or they're fully remote. And then about the other half kind of breaks down one day, two days, three days, four days. And, then we asked the question, okay, how much did you work last week? Just as an average, it was, it was at the beginning of October, um, and looked at the difference between those two things. And so, interestingly, about two-thirds of people are going in the same number of days as they're expected, and then about 15% are going in uh, less than they're expected, and about 15% are going in more than they expected. So it was just you know a thing we were looking at, which is, you know, employers can set expectations, but do employees, you know, always meet those expectations? Um, and we were wondering whether it would, you know, skew on average less than expectations. And we didn't really find that. The more employers expect their employees to go in, the less, you know, compliance there is, which is maybe unsurprising. Um, but even maybe just one other fact is people with no fixed expectations, so their employers let them do what they want still about half are going in at least one day. Uh, and so I think people, you know, are kind of voting with their feet. They like the idea of sometimes going in, building those connections. We're sick of, you know, always being on the screen um, uh, together. But uh, people want to balance. we got about uh, 45 seconds. Where do, you th- where do you see hybrid work going from here? It's not, not going to go away, but how do you see it morphing and changing over the next few years? I think, you know, employees and managers are trying to, you know, figure out uh, the balance. Everyone around the world is is asking the same question, and we're going to need to build new skills. So one of the things we heard is, I don't want to go into the office to just sit on my screen and do Zoom calls with people who are also, uh, you know, at home. And so it's about when you're bringing people together, using that in the most productive way, and that's going to take you know practice and, and new skills from managers. And so I think it's everyone's figuring this out as they go, but at the core of it. People who get to remote work really like it, and it's just about, you know, finding that balance between all the considerations. Interesting stuff. Sam, thanks for the time today. No problem. Take care. That's Sam Andre. He's the Director of Policy and Research in the Leadership Lab at Toronto Metropolitan University. You can check out uh, the article online at theconversation.com. The headline, Working One Day a Week in Person Might Be the Key to Happier, More Productive Employees. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.